The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter, and today the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 22 through 25. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Julie. Let's pray this morning. Father, every word that we find written in this passage is a priceless treasure because it's your self-revelation. So thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are or how we can know you. Or live in the realm of your blessing, Lord. You've already told us in your word. And so help us to understand everything we need to understand. And be changed in every way we need to be changed this morning. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that's involved in having children is a lot of talk about percentiles. Especially in the first few months of a baby's life, we receive numerous reports uh, about what percentiles they're in when it comes to things like height and weight, and we usually appreciate having that data. Now, I have to admit that one percentile ranking I've never quite known what to do with has been the baby's head circumference. That seems uh, like a bit of an intriguing, uh, I guess, measurement to take, and I'm sure there's some sophisticated medical reason for it, but the only thing I've ever been able to conclude from that is, you know, the likelihood of my kid looking funny, right? You don't want your kid to have the head the size of a basketball before they're even a teenager. But uh, when it comes to things like height and weight, I've always appreciated being told what percentile my children are in. Even though I don't put too much stock in percentiles, uh, I nevertheless do appreciate having at least some level of confirmation that my kids are experiencing normal and healthy physical development. But what about a person's spiritual development? How do we measure that? Well, it's not quite so easy, is it? With physical development, you can just measure things like height and weight and apparently head circumference and have a relatively good idea of uh, how a person's developing physically. But with spiritual development, it's a bit more difficult. And so thinking of ourselves, 
How can we know whether or not we're developing or developing spiritually? And how can we know if we're spiritually mature? From what I've seen, a lot of people tend to assume they're spiritually mature simply because they've accumulated a lot of knowledge about the Bible and theology. Maybe they've read theology books and have you know, studied the intricacies of the Trinity. And maybe they can even tell you the difference between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. I mean, you know, surely anyone who knows what fancy theology terms like that mean, surely they would be mature, right? Alternatively, others might assume they're mature because they're very devoted in their practice of various spiritual disciplines, such as reading the Bible and praying. Or perhaps they assume that the fact that they're actively involved in some kind of church ministry must mean they're mature. Or maybe they think that they're mature because of their outward morality. You know, they can go down their mental holiness checklist and check most of the boxes, right? Not having substance abuse issues, check. Not cheating on taxes, check. You know, not having sex outside of marriage, check. Not gossiping, check. Not swearing, check. And if they check enough boxes, well, they just assume they're pretty mature. Or one additional possibility uh, that people might assume is an indicator of maturity is simply that they've been a Christian for a long time. In their minds, surely the fact that they've been a Christian for 30 years must mean they're mature. Yet in reality, I don't believe any of these things are definitive measurements of spiritual maturity. Some of them certainly have more value than others, but I don't think any of them is definitive. Instead, I'm convinced that the most accurate measurement of a person's spiritual maturity is their love. How passionately do they love God? How fervently do they love other people? That's the best indicator there is, I think, of a person's maturity as a Christian. And I don't really think it's very difficult to find biblical support for that. I imagine some of you might already be thinking of Matthew 22, 37 through 39, where a Pharisee asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In addition, the Apostle Paul famously writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. On the basis of that verse, we might say that there are three vital signs that mark a true Christian. Just as there are various vital signs that indicate physical life, such as breathing and pulse and blood pressure, there are likewise 
vital signs that indicate spiritual life, namely faith, hope, and love. Yet, as Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest of all spiritual virtues. And indeed, if we consider the words of Jesus, the culmination of all spiritual virtues. Everything that we're called to be and do as Christians is summed up in love. And so as we turn our attention to our main passage of Scripture today, uh, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25, it shouldn't surprise us to read what Peter says. He says in verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So let's just walk through that very briefly, phrase by phrase. Peter first reminds his readers of the foundational reality that should encourage them to love one another, and that's the fact that they've purified their souls by their obedience to the truth. Now, there's actually some debate about how how best to interpret this. Uh, I believe the best interpretation is that the purification of our souls refers to the time when we were converted. When someone experiences conversion, God changes them on the inside. The Bible describes it as a change of heart, or what we might call a spiritual heart transplant. Their old sinful heart is removed and is replaced with a new heart, one that's oriented toward God and that desires what pleases God. Essentially, it's purified. That's what Peter's talking about when he refers to the purification of their souls. And that happens, Peter says, at the point in time when we're obedient to the truth. That is the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus and what he's done for us. Now, usually the Bible speaks of us believing the gospel, but there are several occasions when it speaks of us obeying the gospel as well. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul says that Jesus will punish, quote, those who do not obey the gospel, end quote. And in Acts 6, 7, we're told about people becoming obedient to the faith. The reason for this is that true belief, true faith, includes an element of devotion to God and a purposing in our hearts to start pleasing God and obeying God. Therefore, saving faith is referred to not just as belief in the truth, but also quite often as obedience to the truth, as we see here in 1 Peter. And so Peter talks about his readers having purified their souls by their obedience to the truth, and then he says, for a sincere brotherly love. That word for indicates that a purpose is being identified. One key purpose for which our souls have been purified at conversion is for a sincere brotherly love. Love. Essentially, we were saved so that we can love one another. If you're a Christian, God didn't save you so you could go on living a selfish, you know, self-absorbed, 
uh, self-centered life, but rather so you could start being more oriented around the welfare and the well-being of the people around you than you are even about your own welfare and well-being. You were saved so that you can love. And Peter describes it here as a sincere brotherly love. Our love should be sincere in that it should be unfeigned. I'm sure we've all had people who acted pretty nice to us, to our face, but then maybe not so much behind our back, right? Peter says not to do that, but instead to make sure that the love we display is a sincere love. He also says to make sure it's a brotherly love. This speaks to the fact that Christians are called to have a unique family love for each other. Even though we're certainly called to love everyone in the world, we're called to have a unique and higher love for other Christians, a brotherly love. And after that, Peter goes on to give a direct command. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. One commentator explains that that Greek word translated earnestly is actually a physiological term that refers to stretching a muscle to the furthest limit of its capacity. I remember one time when I was in high school running at a track meet and truly giving it everything I had. I was competing in the two-mile race, and that consisted of eight laps around the track, which might not sound too bad, but trust me, if you're running at a pretty decent pace, it can actually be rather brutal. And so there I was running this two-mile race, and it was actually the district track meet, meaning it was the championship track meet for all the schools in our district. And toward the end of the race, I was just trying so hard. I, I, the, the whole final lap is sort of a blur to me. I just remember giving it everything I had to get across that finish line. And once I crossed the finish line, I didn't pass out, but I did get a bit dizzy and disoriented. I, I couldn't even stand. I actually just had to lay down right in the, the, the football field within the track. And my chest was heaving. I was just trying to recover from that immense exertion of energy. I can't recall exerting myself to that capacity actually since then. It's probably the greatest physical exertion I've ever, I've ever done. And I didn't even win, unfortunately, but <laughs> I did make regionals, so that was something. But, but that's what comes to my mind. I'm sure you've got experiences you could think of as well, but that's what comes to my mind when I think of the word earnestly here in this verse, like pushing your body to the furthest limit of its capacity. And according to Peter, That's the way we're supposed to love one another. We're called to have a love for one another that doesn't hold anything back, but that extends itself to the fullest extent possible in promoting the welfare and the interests, really, of everyone, but especially of our brothers and sisters in the faith. So how earnest is your love? And how is that currently being expressed in your life? Like if an outsider were to look at your interactions with other people in the church, specifically other Christians, 
would they conclude that you're loving them earnestly? And if so, on what basis would they conclude that? Then as we cross over into verse 23, we see the grounds on which we're told to love one another. And that is the fact that we've been born again. Peter says to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The phrase born again is a metaphor that speaks of what happens spiritually within a person's heart at conversion. In the previous verse, remember, Peter just referred to it as a purification of the soul. I also said earlier that the Bible speaks of it as our old sinful heart being replaced with a new godly heart. Yet I really like the phrase born again because it emphasizes just how radical this change is. It's so radical. It's as if a new person has entered the world because that's what happens in a physical birth, right? When someone's born physically, a new person enters the world. And likewise, when someone's born again, a new person has just entered the world all over again. The individual now has new desires, new priorities, and an entirely new perspective on life. And it's only because those of us who are Christians have been changed in this way that we're capable of loving one another earnestly, as Peter tells us to do. Left to our own devices, we can't be truly loving people. It's only through God and God's power at work in our hearts that we can have this kind of love. Now, let's just pause for a moment and recognize that Peter could have stopped right there. He could have exhorted his readers to love one another because they've been born again, and that would have been a complete thought. Yet Peter doesn't stop there, but instead spends the rest of this verse and the subsequent two verses emphasizing not just the fact that we've been born again, but also the means by which we've been born again. And due to Peter's extensive elaboration on the means of the new birth, I believe that's where the emphasis of the passage is. Peter says that we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And he then spends the next two verses describing the enduring and eternal nature of that word. So with that in mind, we're now able to identify the main idea of this passage, which is that Christians should love one another because of the radical way the word of God has changed them. Again, Christians should love one another because of the radical way the word of God has changed them. And uh, again, Peter emphasizes the enduring and eternal nature of this word. He says that we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Typically, of course, seeds are perishable. They don't last forever. 
Like if a farmer has seeds and for whatever reason doesn't plant those seeds, well, I have no idea how long they'll last, but I do know that they're not going to be good indefinitely. They're going to go bad. And even if the farmer plants them, the crops they produce will eventually die. So every earthly seed is perishable. But we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Peter then identifies this imperishable seed as the living and abiding word of God. God's word is living in the sense that it's powerful, even to the point of imparting new life to people. We also read that it's abiding. Like when God's word gets into someone and changes their heart and brings about the new birth, it never leaves. It takes up permanent residence in their heart. In addition, God's word is also abiding in the sense that it's eternal. Eternally true, eternally powerful, eternally relevant. This is the sense Peter focuses on in verse 24, in the beginning of verse 25. Quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8, he writes, That all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The thing about grass and flowers, of course, is that they're here today and gone tomorrow. Think about the nicest bouquet of flowers that you've ever seen. No matter how beautiful or fragrant those flowers were, I can guarantee that their beauty began to fade just within a matter of days and that they eventually shriveled up and were no longer beautiful at all. That's just what happens to flowers. Even the nicest bouquet will soon wither and die. Yet in striking contrast to that, Peter says that the word of the Lord remains forever. God's word is and forever will be the supreme standard of all truth. Like There won't ever be a time when it's not true and powerful and relevant. And you know, we live in a world where lies and misrepresentations abound. With the so-called, uh, it seems to be getting worse as well, right? I mean, now we have the, the deepfake technology that's out there and all the different ways people can use AI to create just about anything. Like we are quickly approaching the point where we can't even believe our own eyes anymore. We just don't know, especially at first glance, whether a picture or a video that we see is real or not real. And so we might wonder, like, is there anything that we can trust? Like, is there anything out there that we can be sure won't be shown tomorrow to be a farce? Why, yes, there is. The Word of God. The ground, 
might be shifting beneath our feet in every other area so that we're not even sure what in this world we can even trust anymore. But one thing we'll always be able to trust is God's word. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, Peter says at the end of verse 25, is the good news that was preached to you. So, Strictly speaking, the word of the Lord refers to the gospel message, spoken up here as the good news that was preached to you. The word gospel literally means good news. And this good news is that when we were enslaved to sin and thoroughly deserving of God's punishment and helpless to save ourselves, that Jesus came to our rescue. He entered this world as one of us, like a real flesh and blood human being, and lived a life of perfect, sinless obedience to God's law. And then after that, he voluntarily allowed himself to be crucified in order to make atonement for our sins. That means Jesus Dying on the cross was the sacrifice that was necessary in order to appease God the Father's righteous indignation and even wrath against sin. That's what happened on the cross. Essentially, Jesus suffered the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. Then three days later, he, of course, resurrected from the dead in order to demonstrate that the Father had indeed accepted his sacrifice, and now he stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust exclusively in him for rescue. So Jesus does for us what we could like, never do for ourselves. He rescues us from both the guilt and power of our sins and, and brings us into a relationship with God and gives us the gift of eternal life. So that's what I would call good news. God didn't leave us in our sins, but instead sent us a Savior. So strictly speaking, the word of the Lord here in in 1 Peter refers to the gospel message. Yet it's also important to recognize that God's caused this gospel message to be written down in what we now know as the Bible. In a sense... The entire Bible actually tells the story of the gospel. A very full rendering of the story from the very beginning at creation all the way to the very end. And the consummation of the gospel message in which God's people are forever reunited with him in the new heavens and new earth. And so the word of the Lord here refers not just to that summary message that the gospel message that you or I might share with someone in five minutes, but also to the full and fleshed out message of the gospel that comprises really the entirety of Scripture, perfectly and eternally preserved in the pages of the Bible. And so it is appropriate to think of the word of the Lord here as the entirety of the Bible. And Peter's point in this passage is that for those of us who are Christians, it's this word of God that's changed us and made us into the people we are today. 
God's word is his instrument of change and transformation in our lives. As we see in verse 23, it's the means by which we've been born again and also the means by which we continue to be transformed throughout our lives as God's word continues to live and abide in us. Nothing else can impart life to us and transform our hearts and shape our desires the way God's word can. So how then should we respond to all this? Well, let me suggest four responses. I could certainly go on and on about each one of these, but I'll have to make them as brief as possible. First, get into the word until the word gets into you. Get into the word until the word gets into you. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, all of that. Let it shape your heart, guide your prayers, stir your affections, inspire your worship, and inform your obedience. And uh, we'll actually discuss the importance of reading and studying the Bible pretty extensively in a couple of weeks when we look at 1 Peter 2. So I'll hold off saying anything else about that for now, but just know it's absolutely foundational for our spiritual health and growth. Then a second response to the transformative power of God's Word is to recognize the value of expository preaching. Expository preaching uh, refers to preaching that brings out the message, that brings it out of a particular passage of the Bible. The goal is for the main idea of the sermon to match the main idea of the biblical passage being studied and for the sermon to be thoroughly saturated with that passage. So an expository sermon does more than simply refer to the passage or be inspired by the passage, it actually preaches that passage. One analogy I've heard and found helpful is that of a swimming pool. Uh, Preachers will uh, generally use the Bible in one of three ways. Sometimes they use the Bible as a diving board. So they read the biblical passage at the beginning, but then kind of wander off and you know, never quite find their way back to that biblical passage. Other times, they'll use the Bible sort of like patio furniture near the pool. You know, they'll read a passage of Scripture, and they might like, refer to it every now and then for a casual sit, but that's about it. However, an expository preacher will use the Bible as a swimming pool and actually take their listeners for a prolonged swim in the biblical passage that they're preaching. So expository sermons swim in the Bible and are thoroughly saturated and immersed with that biblical text. And so hopefully you see the connection I'm making here, right? If we really believe What Peter says in our main passage about the transformative power of the Word of God and how it's the Word of God 
That's his instrument of change in our lives and renewal in our souls. Well, if that's the case, expository preaching is absolutely the way to go. And to be candid with you, that's a key reason why we actually even started this church in the first place. It's because we believed and we still believe that there's a tremendous need for expository preaching in the South Hills area. Preaching that's faithful to the biblical text. Preaching that swims in the text. And preaching that helps people connect that text to their lives. You know, it's one thing to say that you believe in the power and authority of the Bible. You know, anyone can, can say that. But if we really believe that God's word is powerful and authoritative, then I would think that we would want sermons to be framed, not, not just referring to Scripture, but actually framed, not around, you know, inspiring stories or religious platitudes or self-help advice, but framed around the Word of God. And that's what expository preaching does. Then moving forward, a third response to uh, what we see in 1 Peter about the transformative power of God's Word is to be steadfast in standing on biblical truth. Stand on God's Word unapologetically, and without compromise. And that includes the biblical teachings that aren't very popular in society, such as the teachings that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that hell is a very real place, that any sexual relationship outside the covenant of marriage is sinful, that the Bible only permits divorce in cases of adultery or abandonment, that any LGBT lifestyle is contrary to God's design, and that abortion is actually murder, just to name a few of those controversial teachings. And in fact, our willingness to stand on what the Bible says about these controversial issues and other issues like these is a key measure of our faithfulness to the Bible. I appreciate the way the great reformer Martin Luther uh, said it back in the 1500s. He said, If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the rest of the battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if the soldier flinches at that point. Isn't that good? Where the battle rages, Luther says, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. So that means... For example, if we have 10 doctrines and one of them is unpopular, one of them is under attack, then faithfully teaching the other nine doctrines while remaining silent about that one that's under attack doesn't constitute faithfulness to the Bible. So we have to be 
clear about our convictions, both as individuals and as a church. And of course, as I mentioned, we're also committed to expository preaching, which means that we follow the biblical text wherever it goes during our times together on Sunday morning. So that means, you know, we're not up here just going out of our way to address as many controversial issues that we, as we possibly can each and every Sunday, right? Our primary focus is indeed on the message of the gospel because that's the central emphasis of the Bible. However, at the same time, we need to be very clear about our convictions and not afraid to stand on those convictions regardless of what the consequences might be. Like, regardless of what happens to us, we need to be led not by our godless culture, but rather by the word of God. And so perhaps a good and balanced way to describe it, what our goal should be, is to be clear where the Bible is clear, and yet also focused where the Bible is focused. So we want to be clear about what Scripture says about controversial issues, and yet not let the tail wag the dog either. We want to also be focused on the things that Scripture is focused on. So both clarity and focus. And then one final response to what Peter says about the transformative power of God's Word is to put your confidence in God's Word in your evangelistic efforts. Now, Jesus causes those of us who are Christians to a life of evangelism, which is sharing the gospel with people around us with the hope that they'll become Christians as well. And as we do that, our confidence should be not in any particular evangelistic technique or in our own charisma or in any other human device, but rather in the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to change people's hearts. Never forget that as the Bible says, in verse, as Peter clearly reminds us in verse 23 of our main passage, it's the word of God that causes people to be born again. Not our intelligence, not our ability to be persuasive, not this or that clever technique we employ, but the word of God. Like that's what changes people's hearts. And if you notice in verse 23, God's word is compared to a seed. And the thing about a seed is that when you plant it, the results aren't immediate, are they? It takes some time to see something come up out of the ground. And likewise, when we plant the seed of God's word in someone's heart by sharing the gospel with them, it's not uncommon for it to take some time before we see any visible result in that person's life. And so we just keep right on faithfully praying for them, sharing with them as we have opportunity, and loving them with the confidence that God will use his word in a powerful way in that person's life. And again, our confidence is in the word to bring about that change and transformation in their heart.